This is the On the Radar show with your host, Radar. That's me. I'm a Columbia College graduate with a degree in radio broadcasting, taking lots of broadcast journalism courses, marketing, music history, television history. And this is the second installment of my On the Radar podcast, where we dive into topics, local sports talk, national sports talk, and pop culture. So we will begin this week, as last week we focused a lot on the Bears and the Cubs, we're going to talk about the White Sox. The White Sox, this offseason, they have planned to fix their team. And there's all these sparkly free agents like Anthony Rendon, Steven Strasburg, Garrett Cole, Marcelo Zuna, Yasmani Grandal. Those are great options. But the White Sox are realistic. They already have Yohan Moncada third base, who has proved that he is great at third base. So with the change defensively, and he learned how to hit better. Tim Anderson had himself a great Year's shortstop winning the batting title and his defense improved slightly. And I know Jose Abreu is a free agent, but he said he doesn't want to go anywhere, so he's determined that he's going to come back next year. And James McCann is still under contract for one more season, and he played amazing. He made the All Star team. Now, Eloy Jimenez probably should win Rookie of the Year, should even be a nominee. He played great. And we know that Luis Roberts going to come up in center field at some point in the season, and Nick Madrigal is going to come up to play second base. So really you're looking at, yeah, Daniel Paco didn't work out. We tried so many other outfields and right field they didn't work out. And we don't really have a DH. But for right now, Zach Collins could be a DH. He's left-handed. Eloy could take a couple days off a week in DH. And you can figure out what you want to do. Do not waste your money on the high-profile free agents. What the White Sox really do need to look at is maybe Marcelo Zuna, Eric Thames, maybe anybody else that plays the outfield that could be a right fielder. A lot of them are right-handed hitters, and the Sox the left-handed hitters. But you could look at Thames, you could look at Domingo Santana. There's there's a good amount of players on this market that the White Sox can sign to play right field, or they can continue to have Leori Garcia play right field and be the leadoff hitter that he's been very good at. And they can then sign a guy like Mike Moustakis or Corey Dickerson or somebody to strictly be the DH because they don't want him out there defensively. That's a very good possibility. And they can sign... Somebody play right field and Zach Collins becomes DH or they keep Leora Garcia in right field so he could be the leadoff hitter with Magical second. And before, you know, Luis Robert gets to where he's proven that he bats in the middle of the lineup, he bats towards the bottom for now. And they get a, a Moustakas or Corey Dickerson, somebody by a low candidate to DH that's either left-handed or even right-handed. Because pretty much everywhere we're set. Well, the Sox need to spend money on is starting pitching. You could say, oh, Lucas Giolito wasn't great two seasons ago, but he turned around this year. And Lopez was good last year, and he had up and down season this year. Dylan Cease is still figuring it out. Now, Dylan Cease and Lopez, they're question marks. They're not guarantees. Rodon, he's not guaranteed when he comes back from injury. Nor is Michael Kopech are guaranteed. The Sox do not need to be going out there starting guys who hasn't started baseball games in years. The days of starting Jacob Turner, Ross Delweiler, Manny Betelwebos, and Dylan Covey should be over. We should not be starting guys who have not started major league games in a couple of years or have proven they can't be good. Now, by-low candidates like Felix Hernandez, Colin McHugh, Brett Anderson, guys who you sign just eat up innings in the back of the rotation with incentive clause. If they start this many games, they pitch this many innings, this this many wins, they stay healthy enough, that there's bonuses and other things. You sign them to a low-cost deal, and that builds up their value. Now, signing a guy like Madison Bumgarner will cost you some money, and he's had all this wear and tear, but the White Sox should be focused on instead of just Irvin Santana being the only major league pitcher that they signed last year, even to a minor league deal. They should sign a couple of guys to major league deals 
and maybe guys a couple of minor league deals to build up their value and make the roster out of spring training. It saves you money. Same thing with the bullpen. Aaron Bummer was great this year. Jace Fry wasn't. We're still on the hook with Calvin Herrera. We still have Alex Colomay. And a lot of the relievers like Caleb Ferrer and the other ones, they'll be healthy. So they need to sign at least one, maybe two, free agents to be back-end pitchers because we can pencil them in it between Lucas Giolito. Maybe a guy like Julio Tehran. He's had some struggles, but you sign him to an incentive-laden deal, you know, multi-year deal, a couple of years, maybe one or two years, and he, you plug him in number two. Then with you can either re-sign Ivan Nova or sign these buy-low candidates, and they could plug him in three, and then Dylan sees Ronaldo Lopez. Because you can't guarantee that Rodon and Kopech are going to be great when they come back from their injuries, and you can't guarantee that Lopez and Dylan sees are going to figure it out. It's, it's, not, it's not a given science that they can figure this out. So they still should be targeting multiple starting pitchers, either to major league deals with incentives or minor league deals, and some relief pitchers. Because bullpens change every year. The only position players that should be targeting are DHs that could be left-handed or right fielders that could be left-handed. But if they don't get a right fielder, the Garcia playing right field and leading off is not a bad thing because he's been great as a leadoff hitter and he's improved his defense in the outfield. It's more about we need some left-handed hitting, and that can come from the DH spot if we sign somebody and he's a switch hitter, so that's helpful. There really isn't that much we can do in the position player market. It's the pitching that really hurt us last year. Now, the other local team in Chicago is the Chicago Bulls. Now, the problem for Chicago Bulls is they have the roster of very young and talented athletic players who you can run up and down the court. A lot of them can shoot the ball pretty well. Kobe White has proven he can shoot. We all know that Laurie Marketing can shoot. And we signed Tomas Sadarisky and Luke Cornett, that he's young guys to shoot the ball. So we and Chris Dunn can shoot. So we got we sign guys who can shoot and we have guys who can shoot as well already. Now the problem is with Sergeant Jim Boylan, who installed that time clock for these players, is that this structured thing where he's got like it's the it's old school and you're in a, and you're in the military stuff. That doesn't really work with teams currently in twenty nineteen. I'm not saying this as a young person who agrees with this, but that type of structure doesn't work. Being worn down every single day. There's a reason why Tom Thibodeau, both in Chicago and Minnesota, didn't have very long stints. Jim Boylan kind of reminds you of Thibodeau in a way that he spent a long time as an assistant, but at least Thibodeau coached in other places as a high assistant. Boylan's a great defensive guy, but he's not the type of guy you want leading a team. There's really no confidence in this team. They, they lose, they've lost games to the Knicks. They've lost games to other teams like the Knicks who are horrible. Cavaliers and those other teams, the bottom feeders, like the bottom feeders like the Hornets and the Hawks, those are games that the Bulls should be able to win. Like, they beat Memphis, that's one thing. But Memphis is bad. The Bulls should be able to, even with a bad coach, win against the bad teams. Losing to teams like the Lakers or the Clippers or Milwaukee or Philadelphia or even the Nets or the Heat, those make sense. It doesn't make sense to keep losing to bad teams. That's not how it works. Now, his, how he figures out how to handle the roster, who plays point guard, who comes in and off the bench. We don't have a lot of size. Even though Luke Cornett's seven feet, but he's out there as a shooter. Tomas got size, but he's a shooter. Thaddeus Young isn't that tall. He's kind of big, but he's not that tall. And Felicio, there's no trust in playing him big minutes as center. Now, so the Bulls, again, did not get themselves a center. That could back up really, you know, Wendell Carter Jr. What they need is a, a center who comes off the bench, plays defense, grab rebounds, because we're kind of weak at that position. Now, we have... Multiple point guards. So Chris Dunn, if he plays well, you trade him. But the only way to trade him is if he has to start. Tomas 
seems like when he starts the game, he has to facilitate and not really score a lot. We sign him to be that three-point shooter that we kind of need a scorer. And maybe if he comes off the bench and plays a wing position, then he knows that he's out there to score and not out there to facilitate, which is what Chris Dunn and Kobe White's job should be. Now, Laurie Market and Zach Levine, the two of them need to step it up. If they don't take that next step and, and, and play at an all-star caliber level for an Eastern Conference player, the Bulls are not going to make the playoffs. They're not going to be anywhere close to the ninth or even the 10th spot the way that they're playing. The Bulls are most likely going to have to be stuck paying three coaches now that Boylan's under contract for three more years because things are not going to work out and fans are not going to be happy with this team. It's still the same. Gar Foreman, John Paxson, let's hire the cheap guy. Let's hire the guy without experience. The only guy we hired with experience in recent years was Scott Skiles. He coached previously before he got there. Everybody else, no experience. Right? However, a college coach does not count as the experience as an NBA head coach. Thibodeau being an assistant, Jim Boylan being assistant, Van Del Negro, you know, being an assistant and also worked and coached under Greg Popovich when he played for the Spurs. But they continue to be cheap on the coaching and it continue to keep the same guys in the front office. And Paxson went from being a bad GM to being promoted to president of basketball operations. You don't promote upwards. You demote if they're not knowing what they're doing correctly. Now, the Bulls' problems are not going to be fixed at any point this season until the front office gets changed or the coaching gets changed, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be happening. So it's going to be another disappointing season, despite the Bulls having all this young talent, because Fred Hoiberg probably would have been the right coach for this team that had the young, athletic, quick-shooting talent for his, his system, but we don't have that anymore. Thibodeau, is, even with Thibodeau, he had a good enough system for offense. The Bulls scored enough. It's more about the fact that I don't trust Boylan to have any offensive scheme, and it's not like we have a guy on the coaching staff who's known for being a wizard offensively and he can be an up-and-coming next head coach. The Bulls really don't have that. So the Bulls season's going to be very long, and that's not a good thing, especially with the, all the Chicago fans knowing that the Bears season is over with all the things that are happening with them, and the Blackhawks starting over with new head coaching does not really also help any fans in Chicago with being excited about anything. The only thing they've excited about is Cubs hiring a new manager and the White Sox having a chance to be competitive next year. Now, the thing that happens with the White Sox is this is a national story. They came out with all the nominees for all the awards and they already came out with the gold gloves and Yomar Sanchez won a gold glove. Congratulations. That was great. Anthony Rizzo won a gold glove. That's great. I called the beginning of the season that Yomar Sanchez, based on who was starting in the American League at second base, the fact that DJ LeMay was playing third base and first base a lot this year, and some of the usual suspects went to the National League or they were injured for most of the season, there was no guarantee that anybody would win the gold glove second base besides him because he played every game and he always plays great defense, but sometimes they give to the guy with the better offensive statistics, and they didn't do it this time with him. Did it with some other people. Like Cody Bellinger winning gold glove because he's great offensively, but playing a bunch of positions. But that's not where all the issues are with the awards. National League is fine. We know that Peter Alonso is going to run away with it because he could get some MVP votes this year. You know, like when you come out with the ballots in the past, you see where guys finished in top 10. Now with the nominees, you only can vote for those nominees. But before, you'd be like, you know, Pete Alonso can get some votes. And the Braves pitcher Soroka, he pitched really well. Tatis was great, but he was injured and missed a lot of time. So I would have probably put Victor Robles on there because he played a full season and he helped the, the make win the World Series. And in the National League, the Managers Council, 
took the Brewers to the playoffs, Mike Schilt took the Cardinals further than anybody thought they would, and Brave Snitker did a good job. I'm leaning towards Schilt, the Cardinals, nobody thought they would be this good this year. And in the American League, Rocco Botelli could win it because the Twins won 100 games, Aaron Boone could win it, they won 100 games, and of injuries. And Kevin Cash, again, coaching the Rays and managing them all the way to the playoffs when he, you know, to 90-plus wins is pretty good. Nobody thought they could always do that. And the Cy Youngs, the Grom, Ryu, and Mad Max, you know, those are totally fine. Either one of them could win. In the American League, three guys who either pitched for the Astros or used to pitch for the Astros were Cole, Morton, and Verlander. Cole probably should get it because Verlander's already won it. And Bellinger and, you know, Bregman stayed healthy. They played multiple positions, so they could be up for MVP. Rendon, he deserves it, especially after what happened with the World Series. I know it's by regular season award. Yelich and Trout were great until they missed the last month of the season due to injuries. Now, yeah, I would have no problem if Mike Trout won the MVP because he's the best player and Yelich was the best player in the National League. I got no problem with that. The problem that comes with the AL MVP and when I get to the American League the rookie is that Jordan Alvarez, everybody's saying he's going to win it. He deserves to win the whole entire thing. He had a better, better batting average. I was like, okay, so he has a better batting average and his war is 3.7. And he hit 27 over drove in 78. You're like, okay. Brandon Lau was great for the first of the season. And they said, oh, his, his war is 2.9 or something. That's better than the most players. And this pitcher, Means, got a 4.6 war. And you know why? The Orioles were horrible. All their pitchers stunk. They were playing backups right and left. And any good pitching performance was helpful. Trey Mantini was the best player on that team. But he didn't get voted to the All-Star game because they were playing him in right field instead of first base, and there were plenty of good outfielders. They gave it to Means because they had to give it to somebody, and I know he had a good year array, about 360, and he won more games than he lost, and the wins above placement has to be the, the the statistic that everybody looks at. But are you kidding me? Orioles pitcher, one of the worst pitching staffs in all of baseball, is up for the award. Brandon Lau missed a bunch of time of the this, of this season, and is also his brother played at this, in those times that he was gone as well. He's missing time. In the American League, Marcus Simeon, his war is high up there. He's playing shortstop. They battered him leadoff. The A's made the playoffs. But the A's, the last couple of years, have always been that team that squeaks into the playoffs as a wild card spot. They they have good players around him. They have Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. And they also have Steven Piscotti and Chris Davis. And Marcana played really well for them offensively. They have a good a, a bunch of players around him. Like, as big as a fan I am, Alex Bregman, and he had a great year filling in a shortstop at second base when Oliver, when Correa missed time and Altuve missed time. But Bregman, for most of the season, when Correa and Altuve and Yuli Gurriel was there, Jordan Alvarez was there, Josh Reddick, George Springer, Michael Brantley, and then having two guys up for the Cy Young Award and having a very good bullpen and still also having Wade Miley had a good season, they had Zach Grink in their team, his supporting cast was a lot better than Mike Trout's supporting cast. Better than Marcus Simeon's, but not better than the Yankees. The Yankees you're going to say the Yankees. Yeah, the Yankees had Trap. They had Judge, and they had Stanton, and Didi Gregorius, and Glaber Torres. But here's the thing. Stanton missed most of the season. Judge missed time due to injury. Miguel Duar had a season-ending injury. Glaber Torres missed the first couple, uh, missed some time. And, and he was playing shortstop and all over the place because Didi Gregorius, the starting shortstop, missed time the first couple months of the season. There's no contribution to Jacoby Ellsbury. Aaron Hicks missed a lot of the season. Gary Sanchez missed time. And both Luke Voigt, Greg Bird, Edwin Encarnacion also missed time. Luis Severino, their best pitcher, missed time. 
Sabathia missed time. A lot of other starting pitchers missed time. And Dylan Patanza, their setup man, missed time. DJ LeMayu came in and had a six war. He almost had 200 hits. He almost won the batting title. He finished top five this year. He had a 327 batting average. He had 102 RBIs. 70 of those plus RBIs were runners to square position, and he hit 26 home runs. And he did a lot of this at a leadoff spot, a position he hasn't batted out of. When he was in Colorado, he 90% of the time batted second. Sometimes he batted lower in the lineup, batted third. But having a guy who won a batting title batting second and silver sluggers and gold gloves, all these things at second base, it's very specific spots. I think he took him out of his comfort zone, and he should have at least been a nominee. Now, if it's going to come down to Mike Trout, being the best player, Alex Bregman having a great statistical season, that's totally fine. But to leave him off the ballot completely and put Marcus Simeon on this list, and this is coming from a White Sox fan, who the Sox were, you know, he could hit, he's a bad fielder, and he was one of the worst fielders with the eight, and he's hit or miss offensively, but he and he had a good year this year. But what? Well, give him recognition, give him a silver slugger, give him a comeback player of the year award, give him some sort of award, not MVP vote consideration. It should be DJ LeMayu. I personally think he's MVP because he's a second baseman. They had him play third base with Andujar injured because they moved Glaver Torres back to second base when Didi Gregorius was back. And then when Luke Voigt and Anwen Encarnacion missed time, he played a lot of first base, especially in the playoffs. He played goal glove defense at third base and first base and second base. And when he was clutch with runner score position, he drove in a lot of the clutch hits in the playoffs. He had the high batting average. He had a six war if you're going to go by that. He should have been at least nominated. Sorry to Marcus Simeon, but it, the Yankees probably would not have been there without him because it's pretty much... Every single player in that lineup that plays every day for the Yankees missed time. Starting pitchers missed time and, and key relievers missed time. They would not be there without him. Playing out of his comfort zone. Playing first base, third base, batting leadoff. Those are things he doesn't do. Now it comes to the American League leaving somebody off as Rookie of the Year. Eloy Jimenez hit 31 home runs. That is four more than Jordan Alvarez and he drove in 79. So they're close in RBIs. Just because Jordan Alvarez had a higher batting average and, you know, Means has a higher war because the Orioles pitching staff is horrible, and Lau had a higher war, and he was an all-around player, batting close to 300, hitting 17 home runs, had 51 RBIs. Most years, when a rookie of the year hits, a rookie hits 30 plus home runs and almost drives an 80, and yeah, he missed a couple weeks, but so did Lau. So if you're gonna take time away from Eloy because he missed time, Jordan Alvarez didn't start the season with the team. You know, yes, it was more impressive that he did all this in less of bats than Eloy, but. It should be only coming down to Eloy and Jordan because guys who are hitting 27 or 30 home runs, driving 70-plus RBIs, should be the consideration. During his final 84 games, Eloy had a 900 OPS. He was just crushing the ball, okay? He actually plays left field pretty much most of the time. Someone, a guy like me, he pitches once a day. Jordan Alvarez, he and Eloy play every day. But Jordan Alvarez was playing DH 90-something percent, 99% of the time, occasional times in, in left field with interleague matchups or first base. But even though Eloy's not the greatest left field, you got to give somebody credit to go out there every day and play left field as well. So in my personal record book, Gordon Beckham won Rookie of the Year that year that they gave it to Andrew Bader, the pitcher, because he won it for two other publications, just not the baseball writers. In my record book, Eloy Embedis is the Rookie of the Year in 2019, or at least the runner-up. Because how can you leave a guy off that hit 30 home runs? Alonzo hit 50 home runs pretty much. So that's the guy that clearly is going to run away with it. And in a year where a guy doesn't hit 50 and they hit 20-30, they look at it. You know, okay, 27 for Alvarez and 70 RBIs, and he had a high war. His average is better than Eloy. He did in a short time. But I know that's not an MVP award, but he had 
the MVP. Alex Bregman could win the MVP. He has Michael Brantley, who finished top five in batting average. He has veterans in Josh Reddick, Carlos Correa, Jose Altuve, and Yuli Gurriel. And he has this amazing pitching staff and a good bullpen. His supporting cast is so much better. The White Sox had a horrible pitching staff. Bullpen wasn't that great. Outside of Abreu and Tim Anderson and Yomar Makata, there wasn't that much support in the lineup for Eloy Jimenez. So supporting cast for Jordan Alvarez is better than Eloy Jimenez. And even though Eloy Jimenez is a Rookie of the Year award, it's not the most valuable, he was the best rookie, hitting 30-plus home runs and driving almost 80 RBIs. Should guarantee you win Rookie of the Year, or at least be nominee. I don't care about... The war, how many games less Jordan Alvarez did than him, and that Lau had a better overall season or means helped the crappy pitching staff. Nobody ever would think an Orioles pitcher, rookie of the year, all-star? No, there's pretty stupid ideas. So, it's a protest. Eloy should at least be nominated, and DJ LeMay should be nominated. I don't understand what these baseball writers are doing. They're the same ones that don't vote in guys because they hold personal grudges. They like round numbers. They, they make up their own case of this guy's clean, that guy's not clean. How do I figure these things out? That's the problem. This is a ward thing. If you're going to look at numbers and go at war, fine, go at war, but look at these LeMayu's war. Okay? He had a, a pretty good war. He should be up there. I'm not taking Trout or Yellich off the list. Both leagues, they missed time. But I don't understand how these is not even getting a nomination or Eloy and Menace getting a nomination because if you look at the Silver Slugger in the American League, there aren't that many left fielders this year that hit 20-plus home runs. The only guys to really do that are... Eddie Rosario, who got screwed last year when they gave it to Mr. J.D. Martinez, who played DH in left field, they gave him a soul sugar in two positions. That's not That shouldn't be possible. So Eddie Rosario, if he doesn't win it this year, the only other guy that should win in the left field is maybe Michael Brantley because of his high batting average, or Eloy because he had 30 home runs. So if Eloy is one of the top three offensive left fielders in the American League, how is that even enough for Rookie of the Year when it's a crappy Orioles pitcher, a race player who hit 17 home runs, batted 270, and only 51 RBIs? And miss a lot of time this year. Like, that doesn't make any sense. If Jordan Alvarez wins it, fine. But at least he's got to be on the ballot, Eloy Jimenez. Because next year, if he's fully healthy, I'm predicting at least 40 home runs and at least 90 RBIs. Maybe his goal is to crack 100 RBIs next year. That would be amazing. Now, other national stories are, as I talked about last week, the Warriors defensively haven't been great because they don't have Kevin Durant or Clay Thompson, Andre Goddard, Sean Livingston to play defense. And Steph Curry and DeAndre Russell are not great defensively. Now, the latest thing is this. Okay, they would struggle with Steph Curry, Jandrew Russell, and Draymond Green. Well, the problem with this dynasty ending is that they're right now one of the worst teams in basketball. The West is too tough. And with Steph Curry out three months with a broken inj- broken hand, he hurt himself, he's going to miss time. So what's the point of them trying if he's out with an injury for a couple of months? Both D'Angelo Russell and Draymond Green have been nursing minor injuries, and they're playing a bunch of nobodies. Yes, they can get Willie Colley-Stein back and Kevin, Kevin Von Looney back. But just getting back back role-playing centers and you're not playing your best three players, there's no chance they make the playoffs this year, no matter what happens. So the Warriors are not going to be the team that even makes the playoffs this year, which is sad because they're, they're, they're basically their dynasty evaporated because they took away all their depth to get Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant leaves, and then they have to pay the big three on their team, which they decided was... Thompson, Green, and Curry. And when those guys aren't playing, they got nothing else. They got no great role players. Maybe their young players turn out, but it's definitely not the Warriors' year. Now, when it comes to pop culture in this week's thing, now, after watching every single show, I can say that so far I've been right. CBS 
has given additional episodes to all their shows and renewed Evil. And I'm happy they renewed Evil because it's an interesting show. It's a little dark. But the thing is, they have they don't really have a track record of renewing those type of shows. They have their spinoffs, their reboots and remakes. So I can congratulate CBS, the Eyeball logo station. You did something correct. You renewed a show that's an interesting concept and needs time to develop over a full season. So you give them another season so they have confidence that they don't have to rush things. That's great. You gave additional episodes to your half-hour sitcoms, popular type of Shola, Carol Second Act, and Unicorn, and that's great. So far, the Unicorn's been my favorite. Carol Second Act is a pretty average, but it's in the block with Mom, they like that. And the Unicorn's in a block with the Young Sheldon, which doesn't really go together. It would probably go somewhere else, the Unicorn, but that's just me. And Bobber Tavashola is in the neighborhood block, and that's fine. Now, Bobber Tavashola is still not a great show. I still don't have confidence that it's going to actually be renewed. I also don't have confidence Carol's second act's renewed. But if Carol's second act gets renewed, I wouldn't be surprised either. With Life in Pieces, Big Bang Theory, you know, off the air, and the shows, and they didn't renew two of their freshman shows last year. So I wouldn't be surprised. And all right, getting digital episodes, that's great. It's another addition to CBS having a law show along with Bull. That's great, because pretty much all the other ones get canceled. No show gets past two seasons. Four of the people got two seasons, but then it got canceled. And it was also not a full 22 episode season. It was always in the spring or in the fall. Now, NBC, I was right that all the three of the shows are basically done. Bluff City Law only got 10. There's no additional episodes. So that craft making show with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, that's taking that time slot up. And they only gave Bradley Whitford's Perfect Harmony a very limited release. And I don't really think it's going to be renewed. And that's why they, you know, they're not leaving it up in the air, but it doesn't seem like a good uh, chance. And then with the uh, sunny side was Cal Penn, that premise of helping all those people out, and went to Hulu. And I can't really speak on Hulu's practices of getting additional episodes or renewing shows. But once it gets removed from the actual airwaves of NBC, it's not a good idea because the Will and Grace revival final season is back. And before you know it, in the spring, they probably have new shows they want to show. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is going to be on. Because with the Good Place final season, but also being limited release, and you know them removing Sunny Side, Perfect Harmony getting limited release, only Superstore is going to be one of the only half-hour shows NBC has that goes from September through May. Because there'll be new things to put on the air. Now Bluff City Law, the law show, they tried their best. They've had a bunch of law shows. Jimmy Smith's on a law show. It's just not working out. So that's sad to see that go, but it wasn't really that great of a show. So NBC should not be happy that one show went to Hulu and the other one they left in the air because it seems like all three are just not that great. Now, ABC, Emergence is great. It's a great show solving what happened with the girl and where she's from. But all these high-concept sci-fi shows either get bogged down by too much drama, confusing shows, which genre is supposed to be, and their history of renewing stuff with high-concept shows. The only one to have been renewed for more than one season has been lost. Every single other show that ABC has had, or shows like that on Fox where they had The Passage, or ABC or NBC's Manifest, which was bogged down by love triangles and trying to figure things out, that, you know, got renewed, but it wasn't until the following year, like in the spring, when they were announcing shows to be renewed, and we don't know what's going to happen with that because they kept changing who's in charge of the show. So with the ABC track record, it probably won't be renewed, so I won't be surprised, but I would want it to be renewed because it's great. And sometimes, you know, creative private investigator working with cops and whatnot, it's a great premise. Similar crime-solving method. We're going to only be cops or only law enforcement agencies. It could be a mixture of stuff. But I don't have confidence in being renewed either, even though it's great, 
because of Whiskey Cavalier, Deception, Take Two, and Poppy Montgomery's show this year, Reef Break. I don't really have confidence in any of them being renewed. But the but the show Stumptown and Emergence, emotionally, I'm attached to it. I like it, but I don't have confidence in it. And with CW, after three episodes, Batwoman and Nancy Drew was, renew- was uh, renewed. So I will see where Batwoman goes to season before I really make my thing. But so far, it's pretty good vigilante, crime-solving show. You know, CW's in their universe of Arrowverse. They just want more superhero shows. That's fine by me. Nancy Drew, renewed after three episodes. And not a lot of people are happy because it's not like the 1930s movies, 40s movies, whatever. The TV show, the books. It's not. It's the CW. It's meant for teenagers and adults, not children. And you need to see where it goes. Once they finally get past who murdered this person, who murdered the town, well, you know, storage of this woman who haunts the town. Once they get past that, maybe every week they'll look into something will be different. So they're all trying to figure it out because that's also building their, you know, Riverdale team universe. So that's a good thing. And the hope is maybe that CW realizes that you don't have to renew every show. You can wait a bit because in the dark, I feel like this is next next year when season two starts in the spring. That's definitely not getting more than two seasons. That's one of the worst shows I've ever watched. And I don't really have confidence that Rosso New Mexico will be renewed after two seasons because I didn't think it would be renewed after one. But yeah. And then we get to Fox. Fox renewed Prodigal Son, and that's great. Serial, selling murderers, serial killers, father helping him work out. It's been pretty good so far. Fox gave a confidence that Fox has been known to, giving a show two years. That's great. Sometimes Fox recently has canceled shows or pulled them from the air, not given the confidence they need. But this time they said, you know what, we'll renew you for season two. We can let you figure things out for the full season and we can have a long, another good long running show. And that's a great thing because I always like to be on the forefront of, of shows at the beginning. Like I had, I had been with Empire, I was with Riverdale and with Arrow and all the other CW shows. So I'm glad I'm, I'm in the forefront of Prodigal Son because I can feel I could be on for three to five years. And the Bless the Hearts sitcom, they finally did a Fox. It's pretty funny, it's stupid, but it's got the correct thing of idiot father, mom who's got it going, troubled teenager and silly relative and them doing silly plots every episode, trying to make money, do other things. Now, it's got a limited release and I know it's not gonna have that many episodes this year, but it's fine by me. Fox decided, you know what? We got. We want to go back to what we're known for, just plopping out half-hour animated sitcoms Sunday nights between The Simpsons and Family Guy and Bob's Burger, and maybe when the football season's over, they'll have something at 6.30 as well, because that's what it was. Even if the shows weren't that great, because they've had nine other shows since Bob's Burger, and they pretty much failed, and they've also put live-action shows on Sunday nights. But, you know, that's the thing. They need to go back to what they're known for. Now, with football over, I don't know what they're going to have Thursday nights, on Fox because unfortunately the Orville has moved to a streaming platform. I don't know if it was Hulu, Amazon, or Netflix, but it's moved to a streaming platform and it won't be continuing and Gotham's over. And so the question is, what's Thursday night's going to be on Fox with football over? Maybe they'll premiere some new shows that could be on Thursday nights because it looks like The Masked Singer is going to be every single season. It's going to be the fall, winter, and it's going to be the spring, you know, the winter, spring. So that's Wednesday nights still. What's going to be Thursday nights when football's over? We'll find out. And where is the new 911 show going to be? Is it going to be next, after 911 or Prodigal Son moves to Tuesday nights or it's, didn't get that many, ep- I don't know how many episodes it got? Will 911 spinoff be after The Resident on Tuesday nights or will it be on Wednesday nights? Because I feel like the third show, Almost Family, which should be a half hour sitcom about 
women finding out they're related because the father used his own DNA at the beginning because he didn't have the science. Then it's, it plays like a comedy, but it's an hour-long show, and there's too much cra- unneeded scenes that you don't need to see that if it was a half hour and it's strict to the premise of sisters finding out they're related and they get to know each other, it could be a funny half-hour sitcom. But there's a reason why I was a big fan of Good Girls on NBC because it's supposed to be a comedy, but it's over it for an hour-long program, and it's just not that great. It's not that funny. The supporting cast is great. There's some good actors in the show. Personally, I'm a fan of the man who plays the husband of one of the main characters because he was in Fox's previous show, Pitch, and he's been in Empire as well. He's a good actor. But this is definitely Fox is going to have one canceled show out of the two because the other two they've already renewed. So hopefully they go back to Thursday nights, have a great programming. Friday nights, I don't know if WWE is going to be a whole thing until the summer again because that's when they had great shows because I know Last Man Standing is coming back. I just don't know if that's going to be... You know, Sunday nights thrown in with the animation. Maybe they have a second half hour show thrown in Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday night. Or if it's going to fill up that Thursday slot. Or if it's going to continue being Friday nights. Because the Cool Kids was canceled last year. That was the show it was with. Now. This was the On The Radar show with Radar. Me. For more, check out my Facebook page, On The Radar Entertainment Blog. All my long-form articles like previews and reviews, they're all on Blogger. So at Radar4428.blogspot.com, his YouTube account, my YouTube account is on the radar. Subscribe, please, to my baseball videos. I'm going to post some new ones Saturday night to recap the offseason. Follow me on Twitter at Radar4428, where I tweet about sports and the television shows and movies I watch. And the hope is that this podcast, my first one, will be an Apple podcast and Spotify at some point so for you to download. So... Hopefully you'll be able to listen to this and look at everything else. But that was Radar for On The Radar Entertainment blog. And they're on the Radar podcast. Thanks for listening to my second podcast.